Well, this is our last, our last topic in our series on wisdom. We began it on September the 4th, 2020, and we've covered a lot of ground. Some of the topics that we've looked at, and, and some of these we dealt with even in multiple sessions, are as follows. As we looked at wisdom, we looked at topics like fearing God, forsaking folly, pursuing wisdom, building relationships, accepting correction, preserving purity, keeping silent, speaking truth, cultivating humility, esteeming work, valuing wealth, practicing charity, respecting authority, raising children, handling fools, pursuing justice, uprooting anger, and acquiring respect. Now, the best way to handle, or to close, I should say, our entire series on wisdom is to look at this ultimate topic, the topic of trusting God. Trusting God. Indeed, the book of Proverbs is written for instruction in wisdom. It is written to provide God's Word, divine revelation, in a way that would enable those who fear God, would enable them to walk successfully in a treacherous world. So Proverbs is filled with all of this concrete instruction. It reveals to us the character of God through all of these different sayings. It gives us insight so that we might live skillfully As those who fear God, we might live skillfully in this treacherous world, this world filled with folly. But how do we live in response to the unknown? God doesn't reveal everything to us. How do we live in light of the unknown? How do we walk along this path that is treacherous on both sides, how do we walk along this path when God's mysterious providence suspends the law of cause and effect? How do we walk when God obstructs our path with pain, when he introduces consequences into our lives or or events and circumstances that seem disconnected from wisdom's assurances. How do we walk? How is the God-fearer to walk when he experiences injustice? When his children reject his counsel? When his health is ruined at an early age? When his wealth is destroyed And when God's promises seem never to be fulfilled, how does a man walk? Well, Proverbs does not leave us without some closing instruction on this topic as well. There's a statement from Horatius Benar that I came across this past week in relation to a different study, and I thought it was apropos to even the question we are considering here. The fact that the path... To, to, to the celestial city, so to speak, the, the pathway of wisdom, it's not an easy one. It's not so pleasant. And this is what Horatius Benar observed. He said this, the road to the kingdom is not so pleasant and comfortable and easy and flowery as many dream. It is not a bright sunny avenue of palms. It is not paved with triumph, though it is to end in victory. The termination is glory, honor, and immortality, but on the way there is the thorn in the flesh, the sackcloth, and the cross. Recompense later, but labor here. Rest later, but weariness here. Joy and security later, but here endurance and watchfulness. The race, the battle, the burden, the stumbling block, and oftentimes, the heavy heart. These are all experiences with which we are familiar. 
And even though for much of the book, Proverbs does lay things out in a very concrete way, it emphasizes these different laws that God has programmed into his universe, this moral fabric, especially laws like sowing and reaping, the law of assimilation that we assimilate, the qualities of those whom we respect. Nonetheless, despite all of these concrete instructions, there is the thorn, the sackcloth, and the cross. And the response of Proverbs to that reality when God's mysterious providence doesn't seem to make sense to us, the response of Proverbs is summarized so well in this verse that all of us know so well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. You see, Proverbs does recognize that there is something that is what we could say insufficient with wisdom. Not that wisdom is in any way inferior But that instruction that God has given us for successful living, that divine word, that revelation, will only take us so far. It does not explain everything. And there is much in life that we keep or that we we recognize, we attach to this category called God's mysterious providence. We can teach our kids the way of the Lord, and that's not an ironclad guarantee that every one of them will believe and be saved. We can work hard, but that is not an ironclad guarantee that we will enjoy comfort and, and the fruit of our labors ever increasingly. We can walk the path of righteousness and avoid all the snares and traps of sin, but that does not mean we'll never get cancer and suffer death at an early age or the death of a loved one. And so wisdom will take us so far, and then there is this important virtue called trust. Trust in the Lord. This is such an important Virtue that Charles Bridges, the great commentator in the book of Proverbs, called trust the polar star of a child of God. It is that star in the north that always stays in the same place. It sets our compass. And yet this aspect of trust is also probably most difficult for us to do. To truly trust God when life hurts. To trust God when we lack a divine word. To trust God when it doesn't seem like the consequences line up with the promises. Proverbs calls upon us to trust God. And this most exceedingly difficult thing for us to do is what we now focus on. And when we look at the book of Proverbs, I think we can see six lessons on trusting God from the book of Proverbs. There are more, but we'll look at six of them in our time tonight as we close our study. The first one is this. Trusting God accepts that He is sovereign. Trusting God accepts that He is sovereign. This is Probably the most important one because this is really at the heart of what is the foundation for trust. God's sovereignty. Jerry Bridges summarizes it this way. If we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continuously at work in every aspect and every moment of our lives. End quote. And to help make sense of this world, to help us recognize 
our right response to our circumstances and to God, Proverbs speaks much about the sovereignty of God. It is one of the great books on God's sovereignty that we come across in Scripture. And there are many Proverbs. We'll only look at a few. But it's important to note this before we get into those Proverbs, that Proverbs rejects the notions that have been created by human wisdom. If you look, in, if you look to the human philosophies and the sages of this world, they come up with all kinds of ways that they would explain how life operates in this world. Some would say, well, this world, this universe is left to chance, a belief that there is no rational power ruling this universe and our lives. Others would say that it's fate, a belief that there is no benevolent power that rules the universe. Others would say, well, everything is God. They believe in pantheism, the belief that even evil is God and all of it is God and there is no transcendent holy person who is above it all. Others would espouse dualism, the belief that there are two equal powers in this universe. They're both at war with each other. We're in the midst of that cosmic battle. Sometimes the light wins, sometimes the darkness wins. Many different philosophies have embraced that idea. Or the idea of deism. that God has wound up the universe, put within it different laws, and then he has stepped back and just let natural forces run themselves out. Those are all human philosophies, but Proverbs does not allow the fearer of God to believe in any of that. Instead, Proverbs teaches that the world and everything in it, all of our circumstances, down to the smallest detail, all of that is ruled by a transcendent, absolutely free, rational, personal, and all-powerful God whose plans can never be thwarted. And if we are to trust God, if we are to maintain our sanity in this treacherous world, if we are to respond rightly when, when calamity comes, we must begin with this recognition. God is in complete control. The book of Proverbs communicates this by, first of all, emphasizing that God is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. We could look at Proverbs 3, verse 19 to 20, where we read that a personal God created the universe. Solomon says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says this, again, acknowledging God as the creator and sustainer, Solomon says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. We must recognize that God is in ultimate control of everything that happens in this universe down to our own very personal circumstances. He is sovereign because he has brought it all into existence and by his power and wisdom he owns and sustains it all. Because he is the creator, all that occurs in time and space is under his control. Proverbs 16 verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, man's steps are, are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Or Proverbs 21, verse 1 the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. First and foremost, if we are to, to, to maintain sanity 
and have joy and peace in this world, we, we must acknowledge, we must acquiesce to this reality that God is in control. Even our worst circumstance is not outside of His plan. Even the tragedy and calamity that comes is not something that caught God off guard or is something that is causing Him to panic or wonder what to do next. Trusting God means we acquiesce, we bow the knee, we submit to this reality that God is in absolute control. Bruce Waltke said this in his commentary, God's transcendence as creator and sustainer of the world assures his sovereign supremacy, his freedom to enact his will. Chance does not rule, but the Lord rules chance. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as blind fate. The pain that you experience is coming from the hand of God. Now, there are many people who shrink back from that and say, No, I cannot believe that. And my response to you is, Okay, what happens next? Reject the sovereignty of God. How does that help? Where do you get comfort from that? The cancer that you were told of, that's not of God. If that's the case, then what hope do you have? There is no mind behind it. There's no purpose behind it. It's all chance and blind fate. Where is the hope? There isn't any unless you recognize and embrace the reality that this too comes from God. That is our only path forward. That is the only basis upon which we can build trust and have joy and peace in this treacherous world. It's interesting to note that like the book of Job, Proverbs is not interested in explaining the why and the how of God's sovereignty and how it fits with our experience. It's interesting. The biblical sages, the biblical wise men did not think it was their duty to express or to to articulate or explain why. Probably because they would say, we don't know. But they would be sure to explain that. That God is sovereign. Consider the words of Agur in Proverbs 30 verse 2 to 4 as he struggles with this reality. He said this, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. In other words, I don't. The sages did not give the explanation of how these things so intricately connect with human experience and man's will and so on and so forth. But the sages, the biblical sages, were sure to emphasize that this was true. It's like Job in Job 42. You remember that scenario, right? He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. His wife told him to curse God and die. And so for a while, Job held up underneath the pressure, but then sought to try to find the reason why God would do this. He had some very unhelpful friends who kept saying to him, well, you only experience these things if you sin. So therefore, Job, you sinned. That's the only explanation. You you lost your health, you lost your family, you lost your wealth only because you sinned. And Job rightfully said, no, I'm innocent. But Job didn't go far enough. He wanted to know from God, why? 
Why did you do this, God? Then God appears to him in the whirlwind. In Job 38, 39, and 40. And asks him all the questions. Doesn't give him one reason. Doesn't even tell him that Satan came to his throne room to ask to sift Job. Doesn't even tell him that. Just says, Job, okay, you want to put me on trial. You want to question my sovereignty. Okay, let's go for it. Asks Job all these questions. And then we read, as Job is brought to the end of himself, Job 42, 1 to 6. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak, I will ask you and you will instruct me. That's what Job had said and Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Spurgeon taught much about the sovereignty of God and the need for us to trust in God's sovereign hand. And I want to read a lengthy quote from him because it fits so well with what we're studying here in Proverbs. And we trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Spurgeon said this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almanory to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, the creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. This is so very important again. Wisdom will only take you so far. It will only give you instruction to a point. But we live not by sight, but by faith. And then there is a point in time. When all that's left for us to do is trust. All that is left for us to do is say, this too is from the hand of a sovereign God. It's in his control. He has designed it for my life. It is painful. It brings discomfort. I don't like it. But I know that God is sovereign. It is from his hand. This is one of the most important things for us as believers to do. We must humble ourselves under this mighty hand of God. And until we do, we will not have peace. Again, as Spurgeon said, the doctrine of divine sovereignty is the pillow on which the Christian lays his head. Or we could put it in other ways. The doctrine of divine sovereignty is the only doctrine that will make sense of our pain. That will make sense of all those unanswered questions. Of all those times when we say, but Lord, I, was, I, I, I sought to please you and, and yet this, I, I 
I trained my children. I, I, I brought them to the church. I, I shared the gospel. I lived the gospel in front of them, and yet they didn't believe. How? And the Proverbs come back to us and say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Number two, trusting God acknowledges one's finitude and fallenness. We won't spend a lot of time on this one. But it is important as well. Proverbs emphasizes that essential to trusting God is the accurate recognition of one's condition. The child of God must admit his errant logic of his own understanding and the distorted vision of his own eyes. Trusting God is the only reasonable option because... To trust in anything else, including to trust in ourselves, spells only disappointment and disaster. Think of it. When we put our trust in ourselves and our own logic, we are taking a peon and saying that peon can possibly comprehend all of the processes and movements of God's great design. When we put trust in ourselves and our own logic, this is right, that's not right, this should happen, that should not happen, this is just for us, this is unjust. When we do that, we are putting into our limited brain cells, our limited understanding, a a, a task, a responsibility that it is not designed to bear. We must recognize our finitude, our fallenness, and not rely upon what our eyes are telling us when our eyes are telling us that which causes us to doubt God's goodness. Again, Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, Charles Bridges said this, But our trust must not only be entire, it must be exclusive. No other confidence, no confidence in the flesh can coexist with it. Man with all his pride feels that he wants something to lean to. As a fallen being, he naturally leans to himself, to his own foolish notions and false fancies. Human power is his idol. His understanding is his God. This is the history of the fall, the history of man from the fall, the dominant sin of every unhumbled heart, and the lamented and resisted sin of every child of God. This is what we battle against, men, every day, fighting against wanting to take things into our own hands and wanting to to set the universe on a course according to our own understanding, to establish our understanding, our interpretation of our circumstances as the standard, and then judge everything else, including God, on the basis of that logic. Proverbs tells us, remember who you are. You're limited and you're fallen. Folly is still in your flesh. Proverbs 14.12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 21, verse 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. We must remember that. And that's not just speaking of the unbeliever It speaks also of the battle that we still face in our own flesh. Our flesh is constantly alluring us back. It wants us to place our trust in our own eyes, in how we interpret the circumstances, in how we view things, in what we think is right for us. And Proverbs reminds us and says, no, don't lean on that. That'll be your most basic sin You are called to relinquish and to place your trust in God. Number three, trusting God affirms that He is faithful and good. Trusting God affirms that He is sovereign 
trust in God requires us to recognize our own limitations. God is God. I am not. And number three, trusting God also affirms that he is faithful and good. When we place our trust in God, when we say in the midst of the pain and the suffering, God, I trust you, it is affirming that we believe him to be faithful and good. Man can trust in this sovereign God because the testimony of Scripture is so clear that he is good and he cares for those who turn to him in need. The book of Proverbs emphasizes not only that God is transcendent, he is the creator and sustainer, but Proverbs also emphasizes his imminence, that he is involved in your life. He is not far. He is there. Proverbs 3 verse 5 to 6 again, our basic, our foundational text. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And notice this. And he will make your paths straight. He will make your paths straight. Now understand this. They may not, you, you may not see very far in front of you. The fog may obstruct your vision. It, it may take you through an unknown area of life. But you can be guaranteed because of God's faithfulness and his goodness that there's coming a day when that path will take you straight to his kingdom. It won't deviate. It won't lead you to some broken down, shuttered building. It'll take you right to his presence. He is so involved in your life and trusting him is the way. Proverbs 3 verse 11 to 12, my son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Indeed, so often what we experience in life is that disciplining activity of the Lord. He's not happy to leave us in an undignified state. He's not content to allow us to enjoy lesser things in life. Like C.S. Lewis said, we are so often like those who are content to play in a mud puddle instead of going the block over to see the beauties of the ocean. God doesn't want to leave us in the mud puddle, and so he brings discipline, discomfort, hardship. He'll bring loss of job. He'll bring loss of health. He'll bring friends who turn on you, all of that to discipline you because why? And this is important, not just because he's some tyrant, who does not care for your life. Now, why does he do that? Understand what Proverbs says. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Now, if you truly believe in the second point that we talked about, that we are fallen, we're finite, we still struggle with the flesh, and yet you at the same time want to say, I expect a life of ease, no discomfort in life. Then what you are essentially saying is, I don't want the discipline of my God in my life. I want the clear, easy path of comfort. And if that's really what you want, what does that say when you look at Proverbs 3, verse 11 to 12? You don't want the loving display of God in your life. You don't want the discipline. But it is those whom the Lord loves that he reproves. Proverbs 15 verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. The prayer of the upright is a delight. The prayer, and that's not just a ritualistic prayer. The idea there is the one who cries out to God. Proverbs 15 verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He is not far. You can trust that that prayer that you offer in the confusion and the fog of life, he hears. It's like Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Some of you are at that point already where you pray this kind of way. And it's a sweet prayer. You have times of difficulty and, and, and according to the external standards, life does not go well. And yet you get into your prayer closet. And after the tears, you are able to say those words. 
But I know, Father, that you have afflicted me in your faithfulness. Again, Spurgeon said this, when others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord because he is good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless him that he is good. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain that Jehovah is good. His dispensations may vary, but his nature is always the same. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, which is a really great book on the same topic, writes this, When we disobey God, we defy his authority and despise his holiness. But when we fail to trust God, we doubt his sovereignty and we question his goodness. In both cases, we cast aspersions upon his majesty and his character. Number four, trusting God admits that he is wise. Not only that he is sovereign, not only that we are limited and ignorant, not only that God is good and faithful, but also trusting God is that expression whereby we, we admit, we announce that God is wise. Some will believe that although God is sovereign and although God is good, they will question his, his wisdom. They will question whether God really knows how to get us to glory. People will do that. Believers will do that. Proverbs annuls this argument by emphasizing that God's wisdom is infinite and absolute. He is not only the ultimate origin, and he's the practitioner of anything that can be called wisdom. You can look at Proverbs 3, 19-20, or 8, verses 22-31, to 31, or Proverbs 29, verse 30. God is the source of wisdom he uses wisdom to create and sustain. He is the standard of wisdom. He's the practitioner of wisdom. So how do we define God's wisdom? And this is important in understanding how it relates to our circumstances. God wisdom, God's wisdom can be defined as this. It consists in the selection of the best end of action and the adoption of the best means for the accomplishment of that end. Okay, that's God's wisdom. This is very important for understanding why we trust him. Very important for understanding our own circumstances. In other words, God is infinitely wise because he selects the best possible end of action. And because he adopts the best possible means for the accomplishment of the end which he has in view. In other words, God makes no mistakes. God has a plan for each one of his children to bring them to glory, to conform them to the likeness of his son. He knows each one of his children in intimacy. Proverbs 5 verse 21 says, The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. God knows you intricately. He wove you together. So he's got the goal, and he knows where you're at today. He knows exactly where you're at today. And you know what? He knows the very best means for each one of us individually to get us to the end. It's not just uh, throwing a bunch of options into a hat and picking something out of it and saying, okay, to Brad, I'm going to do this. Picks it out of the hat. Oh, okay. No, he knows the exact plan that I need to experience the exact course of action, the circumstances that will best get me to his goal of glory. And that is the same for each one of us individually here. He does not make mistakes. Again, Jerry Bridges says, it is not only an irreverent act to question God's wisdom, but it is spiritually debilitating. We not only besmirch God's glory, we also deprive ourselves of the comfort and peace that comes by simply trusting him without requiring an explanation. An unreserved trust of God when we don't understand what is happening or why is the only road to peace and comfort and joy. God wants us to honor him by trusting him, but he also desires that we experience the peace and joy that comes as a result. 
This is greatly illustrated in the life of Adoniram Judson. If you have some time over the summer, another book you could add to the reading list is a book on the life of Adoniram Judson, an American missionary who went to Burma to preach the gospel there. After he had been there for some 30 years, had suffered the loss of much, including the deaths of two wives, numerous children. Several of his team members died. He himself was imprisoned, painfully tortured. He wrote a letter in March 11th, 1847, after his home had burned down with all of its possessions, and he, and he, and he writes this, and this expresses this trust in God's wisdom. Quote, Why has this grievous interruption been permitted and all this precious time lost? Why are our houses and property allowed to be burned up? And why are those most dear to us and most qualified to be useful in the cause torn from our arms and dashed into the grave and all their knowledge and qualification with them? Because infinite wisdom and love will have it so. Because it is best for us and best for them and best for the cause and best for the interests of eternity that it should be so. And blessed be God, we know it and are thankful and rejoice and say, glory be to God. Number five, trusting God asserts that he is just, not only sovereign, good and faithful, not only wise, but also just. We talked about God's justice just a couple of weeks ago at the end of April, so I won't go into this. The Proverbs teaches us that God can never be impugned with unrighteousness. He can never be charged with any kind of unrighteous dealings with us. We could go through all those Proverbs. You can look at them in your handout. I won't go through them for lack of time. But it brings up a very important reality that because Proverbs is so full of the justice of God, what's very important is that we put aside this notion that we can be angry with God. It is a popular idea out there in the psychobabble of evangelicalism that you can rage at God and it's helpful to do that. That is, that is devil's, devilish teaching. There is no basis on which to get angry and rage against God because He is always just. He is always righteous. And no matter what circumstance you are in, He has done fairly and rightly with you. And not only that, but the justice of God also means that whatever you have experienced in circumstances that is unjust will be rectified and you can believe that because God is a God of justice. You trust that. And you also recognize that all that you have done for his pleasure will be rewarded. And you can trust that because God is just. Number six, finally, trusting God awards blessing. It gives blessing. It's the greatest source of peace and stability and contentment. If we truly believe in the sovereignty of God, if we truly believe that God is all good and knowing, all wise, all just, we will be, in reality, the most peaceful, tranquil, stable, content people on the face of this planet. And that is what God offers to us. Again, in verse 8 of chapter 3, that this kind of trusting and fearing in God will bring healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Proverbs 14, verse 26 to 27, in the fear of the Lord, and that word for fear there, you know, it, 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 it's so much related to trust. In the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence in his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 28, 14, how blessed is the one who fears always. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. The righteous will flourish like the green leaf. On and on it goes. 
Proverbs 18, verses 10 to 11. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. As we draw to a close, let me read some more words from Jerry Bridges here. The contrast is not between the righteous and the rich in an absolute sense, as there are many people who are both righteous and wealthy. Rather, we should see the contrast drawn between the two primary objects of God's trust. And that's going back to Proverbs 18, verse 10 to 11. A rich man's wealth is in his strong, is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Bridges goes on to say this. Those who trust in the Lord are safe. While those who trust in their wealth only imagine they are safe. There's a much wider principle for us in this passage. All of us tend to have our fortified cities. It may be an advanced college degree and its ticket to a guaranteed position or our insurance policies or our financial nest egg for retirement years. For our nation, it is our military buildup. But anything other than God himself that we tend to trust in becomes our fortified city and its imagined unscalable walls. But Proverbs Proverbs calls us to trust In God alone, exclusively. And by doing that, it will bring the greatest rewards in life. Peace, tranquility, security. When He and He alone is our tower. Trust means that at the end of the day, just as much as at the beginning of the day, we're able to pray those words that Jesus taught His own disciples. Thy will be done. That's what Proverbs calls us to do. At the beginning of our time this evening, we sang a song called Afflicted Saint to Christ Drawn Near. It's by a Baptist pastor of the 1800s, 1700s. His name was John Fawcett. He was orphaned at the age of 12. And then after that, was apprenticed to a tailor, had to educate himself. He was converted eventually by the preaching of George Whitfield at the age of 16 and soon after began pursuing ministry. In 1718, or 1782, excuse me, he wrote this hymn called Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. I want to read it. We sang it, but I want to read it in the original. It's slightly different, but as we close our time and as we close our entire study of Proverbs, this is what Proverbs brings us to, the point of trust. Afflicted saint to Christ drawn near, your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word declares to thee that as thy day, thy strength shall be. Let not thy heart despond and say, how shall I stand the trying day? He has engaged by firm decree that as thy day, thy strength shall be. If faith be weak and foes be strong, and if the conflict should be long, thy Lord will make the tempter flee, for as thy day, thy strength shall be. Should persecution rage and flame, still trust in thy Redeemer's name, in fiery trials thou shalt see that as thy day, thy strength shall be. Men call to bear thy weighty cross, or sore affliction, pain, or loss, or deep distress, or poverty, still as thy day thy strength shall be. And when ghastly death appears in view, Christ's presence shall thy fears subdue. He comes thy spirit to set free, and as thy day thy strength shall be. That is the call Of the gospel, that is the call of Proverbs to place our trust in God and His means of salvation. Some of you need to do that for the first time, really. Some of you have never truly trusted with all your heart. Trusted in God and His way of salvation in the gospel, in His provision that says, yes, you are lost, foolish, 
meriting only punishment and wrath, but because of Christ, my Son, whom I sent to die on the cross, you can have life. Trust in Him. Truly. Today. Don't wait. All that's left outside of that path is treachery and misery. You may trust in your riches, your college degree, your popularity. You may trust in your strength, your stamina, your young age. All of that is but a vapor. And when ghastly death appears in view, what will be waiting for you? Will it be Christ, the one in whom you've trusted? If it is, He will come and He will set thy spirit free and your trust shall become sight. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this reminder. Convicted and humbled. It is so simple and yet we so often miss the mark. But we are thankful that you are sovereign, you are good, you are just, and you are wise. And for your children whom you have redeemed, no matter what comes across our path, it all has its purpose. And you will use it to bring us to your desired end. And it is glorious. It is sweet, therefore, to rest and to trust. Increase that trust in us every day until our faith is sight. And we pray this in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen.